This may sound stupid, but um, when I think of Jonah and what he experienced in chapter 1, verse 1, um, uh, an old TV show comes to mind. And um, it's, it's the first television series that I remember watching as a kid that I can, in my, in my memories. And uh, it was actually recorded uh, or filmed before I was born. Um, so I caught the reruns. I thought it was uh, first time around, but it wasn't. And it was Lost in Space. Any of you old enough to remember Lost in Space? Well, um, connected with that, I remember the first time that I prayed with a sense of urgent anticipation and passion for something. And it, was, it related to that show. Um, and it's such a distinct memory for me. I remember exactly what time it was. It was early in the morning. I remember it was at my dining room table. And, um, and, and I was probably five or six years old. And it was one of those times where I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. If ever there was a time where drops of blood were sweating out of me, figuratively speaking, it was at that moment, five or six. And you know what I wanted more than anything else? I prayed and prayed and prayed that my brother would be Will Robinson in part because I didn't have a brother and I always wanted one. Like I prayed and God never answered that prayer. There you go, unanswered prayer. Probably a good thing. Um, but the reason that I prayed that in addition to the fact that I wanted a brother was he was so cool and he had this really awesome robot. You remember the robot? He had like slinky-like arms. And um, you look at it today and you realize it looks like an obsolete Hoover vacuum cleaner. It's like, that doesn't do anything for me. But at that time, as a kid, man, I thought he was a god, you know. It's like slinky around, danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson. And then he would say something else. Um, when he would, the robots, um, would, would encounter something he didn't understand, he would say, it does not compute, it does not compute, it does not compute. Um, I remember those lines, crystal clear. Some of you probably do too, and I realize I've completely dated myself. But what does this have to do with my message? Only something really small. That is, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, a prophet, sometime in the 8th century. And, um, and it is such an um, out-of-this-world word that he receives that I can't help but thinking that he thought to himself, that does not compute. What the Lord asks Jonah to do does not compute in his theological understanding or conception of who God is, or maybe better, who he wants and wishes God to be. And his word comes to him, it just does not compute. Now you and I have been created as thinking beings to solve problems and to, to put things together. We, we've been created to compute in a matter of speaking, to calculate and get our head around things. And we're constantly computing, whether you know it or not. We're trying to make sense of the world. We're computing. Trying to make sense of our families. We're computing. Trying to make sense of each other. We're, we're computing. Trying to make sense of the Bible. We're computing. Trying to make sense of the God of the Bible. We're constantly computing. And, and, and that is a good thing. We were created that way. And, um, and scores of Christian books have been written in an attempt to compute and understand God in a consistent and logical way. If you've ever read a theological book like a systematic theology, that is a Christian attempt to compute truth into a consistent whole, which is a good thing. The danger, of course, is that God is never subject to our ultimate computation. That is, we can apprehend parts of God, but we can never comprehend God. And there's pieces in the scripture that we just don't fully understand, and yet we try to compute and if we overcompute things that aren't revealed, we end up with a misconception and a distortion of who God is, a God that maybe we don't like. 
And that is something that very much happens in, in this text. And, and you and I are constantly computing too. And sometimes God takes us through things that we find um, jar us, dismantles, begins to dismantle our, our understanding of him because, as I said, he cannot be fully comprehended by us. Um, but that's what this, this, this book is about. It's about realigning, of dismantling um, distorted notions of who God is. Um, and it brings to light um, prejudices of the heart, misunderstandings of who we are. And, and I believe that's, that's what the book is intended to do. It's intended to kind of jar us from our, our oftentimes caricatured um, understanding of who God is and who we are and to humble us and bring us to a place of, of humble worship. That's the design of the book, and that's, that's what I hope happens over the course of the, of the next seven weeks. What I'm going to do this morning is I, I'm going to do three things. I, I want to um, provide an introduction to the book or an overview. If you've ever gone to a foreign place, one of the best things I want to do is see a map. Like, okay, this is where I am, and this is the bigger picture. So I want to overview. Then I want to look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1, and then end with a couple of um, points of application. All right? That, that's where I'm, I'm going, and I just want to encourage you in this first part of the overview just to, to work with me with your computer, with your head, um, because it lays the foundation of where we're headed in the future. So it might make a, take a little bit more mental work, but I just encourage you just for these next couple of moments, just hone in and, fo and focus. Overview. First of all, let me just say that, that um, Jonah is one of the most remarkable and unique books in the whole Old Testament for a number of reasons. And it's not that it's a, it has a fish in it. Most people, when they think of Jonah, it's like, this fish eats this guy. That's what Jonah's about. Listen, the fish is not the main star of the show. He just kind of makes a cameo appearance and then exits. Now, that might be the thing he's remembered for, Jonah's remembered for, but that's not the center. It's just a, uh, it's like a character that comes and, and goes. It's not central to the book. Rather, the focus of the book is on two, per, two people, two, two individuals. The only two who are named by name in the book, Yahweh and Jonah. Those are the only two names, specifically named, in the book. And it's about, if you will, a battle of wills between the two. Of Yahweh commanding and his prophet rebelling. So that by the time you get to the end of the book, you realize Jonah's lost. The battle of wills he has, has lost. And he's frustrated and he's angry about it. It's one of the unique things about the book. Um, is it is a, focuses on a prophet and Yahweh like no one else does. It's also remarkable because if, if again, if you don't know the scriptures that well, then, then you're probably not going to understand what I'm about to say. But you have this collection of books called the, the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi. I think there's 13 of them or 12 plus 4. Uh, that's not 13. That's 16. Um, and, and, and all of them, with the exception of Jonah, are a collection of oracles. That is prophetic visions and words that are given with content. The one that doesn't fit that is the book of Jonah. It's almost entirely story. Like it's a prophetic story. In addition to the fact that the, really the only oracle in the entire book is a simple sentence. Forty days and uh, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. So it's completely intriguing as, as a book. It's the only book, with the possible exception of Nahum in the Old Testament, or I should say the prophets, to end on a question and not with a period. Now, to give you a sense of it, here is a, a basic outline of, of the book. The book can be um, 
if you will, cut into two equal parts very clearly. And I, you're going to see that in just a second. The beginning of the first part is repeated in the beginning of the second part. If, so if you read chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 3, verse 1, side by side, you realize they begin at precisely the same points. That is, in both of those places, we read that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's how it opens up. The book opens up. And then again in chapter 3, it's like, take two. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Again. So those are the two parts, chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and 4. Two parts. Now, when you lay them out side by side in terms of, like, how they fall out, you realize that they are mirror images of each other. In other words, they're laid out exactly the same, and that's intentional. Not to mention massively artistic. We just kind of read the book and, oh, whatever. But this is how it lays out, and if you can't quite read this, uh, I'll read it for you. As I said, Act 1, which is chapters 1 through 2, begins with Jonah receiving a word, which he rebels against. But then look at the action that happens. Jonah meets Gentiles, that is, pagan people on a ship headed somewhere. Those Gentiles cry out to Yahweh. That's the next thing. Those Gentiles are saved, or the pagans are saved. And then it ends with a prayer, chapter 2. Notice the progression. Jonah meets Gentiles, Gentiles cry out, Gentiles are saved, Jonah prays. Beginning in chapter 3, Act 2, same basic sequence. That is, the word comes to Jonah. This time he submits, at least in body. Followed by, Jonah goes to Nineveh, where he meets Gentiles. Exactly the same as above. Uh, the Gentiles cry out for mercy. The Gentiles are saved by God. And Jonah prays yet again in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. They're exactly the same. Lays out. And at the center of it is God's word. Word of the Lord came. More particularly, or to the point, um, is the response to God's word. And what's ironic is the people that you think shouldn't get it and shouldn't respond correctly are the very ones who do. The pagans in chapter 1 and the pagans in chapter 3, they get it, they respond, whereas the one you expect to get it, the prophet... I mean, someone who's been entrusted with divine oracles and has access to the counsel of Almighty God, he's the one who doesn't get it. It's just a huge upheaval. This is unexpected. All of it having to do this with the, this response because he has a problem with God's mercy and justice. It, 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 it goes against his understanding or his desire of what he wants God to be. So it surrounds the word, is central, and more particularly the response of the word and the ironies of, of both. And then notice that there is one um, irregularity in the mirror. And that is if you look at point E. It's the only thing that's different. And it really brings us to the heart of the message of the book, which we're not going to get to for some weeks. But I have to at least hint at it. In the last little portion, the prophet is arguing with Yahweh. Never hear such ludicrous thing as prophet is arguing with Yahweh. He is angry, he's frustrated, and he's upset because God doesn't fit his paradigm, doesn't fit what he desires, and his prejudice comes out. And the book ends with Yahweh asking him a question, which means it, it brings us to a place where it's open-ended. We don't know the rest of the story. We don't know what happened to Jonah. And the reason it's open-ended is because we are the rest of the story. 
how are we going to respond to God's word and his grace and mercy and justice toward people? Are we going to act like Jonah? Or are we going to act like the Ninevites? And by the time we get to the end, um, I, I pray that we'll powerfully, you know, the spirit will use it to, to, to reveal some of the things that we carry with us like Jonah carried with him. So that's kind of, if you will, kind of the overview. And we're going to, that's foundation stone one. Okay, remember it centers on God's words and the response to it and Jonah's problem with that response. Now, back up to verses one through three. One through three, this is what the word of the Lord says. Jonah chapter one, one through three. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. It has become so egregious that God is about to unleash hell on the city, like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And those are just the focus verses this morning to give you an orientation to the beginning of this book. Let me just draw your attention to three things in these three verses. Um, Jonah the prophet, who he was, and the context in which he lived. The second one has to do with his, his mission. And the third, his response. Jonah the prophet, um, his mission, and his response. It opens by identifying him as Jonah the son of Amittai. Um, and that's intentional because um, it links us, or we remind us, to take this book... And link it to 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. The only other place where Jonah of Amittai, is, uh, the son of Amittai, is mentioned. So I want to take you there um, to where he's referenced so you can kind of get a sense of the context in which he ministered. And I think you'll see why in a second. That is, it's significant. So you jump over to 2 Kings chapter 14, 23 through 25. And he isn't mentioned until verse 25. But, um, but for sake of flow, I want to jump back to 23. It says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash. Now, just for sake of history, um, both biblical historians as well as secular historians uh, uh, figure this is sometime between 780 B.C. and 740 B.C., so 8th century. They know this stuff. They actually dug up things with king's names in it and stuff like that. So... Son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now, just to pause, verse 24 tells us, basically, that Jonah ministered in a time of, um, of national sin. All right? He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So there's national sin happening in verse 24. Ironically enough, God prospers them. Verse 25. He, that is the king, restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. There's the phrase. The prophet who was from Gath Hefer. He's ministering in time of national sin, and yet, ironically enough, it's a time of national flourishing. 
I mean, the, the borders are being restored and so forth, which just as a little side note, just because you're prospering doesn't necessarily mean things spiritually are going okay. But things are prospering, things are going well, the land is being expanded. That's the time in which he ministered. That tells us he ministered in kind of a time of, of prosperity. In addition to the fact, you realize that prosperity or the restoration of the borders of Israel were according to the word of the Lord. In other words, Jonah prophesied, guess what, we're going to get our land back. Well, that, let's think about that for a second. That's, that's a pretty positive message. If the Lord told me to tell you that you won the lottery... That wouldn't be hard for me to do. Wouldn't be hard for you to hear either. But that's it. He's living in a time of prosperity. And the only recorded record of what he actually said is that it's a very positive message that works to the prosperity of the people of Israel. So it's living in prosperous times and he has a prosperous message. It's not hard to follow and submit yourself to God's word when things are well when times are flourishing, and when that word is easy. But that's where he's at. That's, that's kind of the character of his ministry as far as what's been revealed to us. So that's, that's the prophet. That's the time in which he lives. An amazing person. I mean, you just think about who the prophets were. Just listen. The pro- prophets and the apostles, prophets in the Old Testament, prophet, uh, apostles in the New, they were the conduits of divine revelation. They are the writers of this book. Um, they are the ones through whom God infallibly spoke to his people. That's, that's not a small thing. That's a huge thing. And Jonah was a prophet of Almighty, Almighty God. That's, so that's the prophet. You can imagine, then, how his mission or commission must have been somewhat alarming. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, now he's used to that part. But the next part, arise and go to, that would have been fine too. Where do you want me to go? Bethel, Jerusalem, Samaria. No, it's Nineveh. That would have been like, a, like a, dropping a bomb in the room. Nineveh. Now, we in the 21st century, we're just like Nineveh, whatever. Nineveh. There's no like emotional connotations that come flying out or rising up within us. But you say a word like now, like Taliban. Or... Um, ISIS, or um, Hitler, or Saddam Hussein, I, all those, they, we as Americans, we like, feel that. It's like there's this instant kind of knee-jerk, ugh, I just don't like that. God comes along and says, hey, arise, I got a job for you. You're going to guess where. It's not Hawaii. It's not London. It's not Germany. You're going into the heart of hostile pagan territory. That's where you're headed. And not only that, but you're going to go and call out against it. You're going to see negative things about what's going to happen to them if they don't change. For their evil, there is a such a thing as evil in our world. It's not everything is just wishy-washy. Evil has, has come up before the Lord in such mass, egregious quantities, he's about to dump hell on them. Notice it's called the great city. Not only was it a great city because of its size, and, and it, it is a massive city, but because of its infamy for brutality and violence and paganism. If you turn in your Bible all the way back to Genesis chapter 10, verse 11, all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, you realize there, even there, thousands of years earlier, it's called the great city. It was a city of renown. And as I said, um, characterized by hostility and brutality. 
Not only so, but it was later the capital of uh, the Assyrian Empire. It was like they were the, they were the BMOC, you know, big man on campus. They were the, they were the superpowers of the day, um, the people who lived in Nineveh along with the Assyrians. That's who they were. And they've actually dug up reliefs, like uh, etched pictures, both in stone and, and bronze, that, that show them decapitating their enemies. We think ISIS is something new. It's not. It was done in the same place thousands of years ago. They skinned people alive and impaled them on stakes to bring fear of the Assyrian people. That, that, that. I wanted to show you a couple of those reliefs, but realized it was probably too graphic. Just to give you a sense, like that's, that's Nineveh. Imagine the Lord saying, hey, guess what? I got a job for you. I want to I send you over into Afghanistan. You're actually going to go into a Taliban territory, and you're going to say, the Lord is going to condemn you to hell if you don't change. You'd be like, what? First of all, it's massively dangerous, right? Like, so I'm going to walk into the middle of the beehive of all of these head-chopping, skinning, um, impaling people, and I'm going to say God's going to bring this. I'm a Jewish guy? I'm going to be lunch for them. It's just like walking up to an angry, hungry lion and just smash, smacking him on the nose with a spatula. It's just, it's just to go poke the bear. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's dangerous. What are the other prophetic people going to think? It's like I'm actually going into enemy territory in, his, in a way that is unprecedented. No other Jewish prophet went into another nation to proclaim, uh, proclaim a word against it. The, 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 the prophetic writings are written to the people of Israel. They cite other nations and have oracles about other nations, but they're delivered to the people of Israel. This is the one exception. I see Jonah going, <laughs> could you... Isaiah didn't have to do this. Jeremiah didn't have to do this. Um, Jeremiah was actually after his time. But, you know, the idea is like, why, why do I have to deliver this into the center of the beehive of Nineveh, into the enemies? And then there was the sneaking suspicion that we find out later, what happens if I get there and I do this and they listen and they repent? The ones repent that every Jewish heart wants smoked in hell. Didn't like that either. So here you have his mission. Just to put it in context, it's very, very difficult. As I said, it's easy to submit and yield to God's word when it's easy and when times are prosperous. But now he's getting sent into the lion's den. And how does he respond? And by the way, it's easy to obey the word of the Lord when it's easy for us. But what about when it's hard? His response, and there's a bit of a word play here in verse 3, but Jonah rose. Now if you go back, verse 2, you realize the Lord said, arise. Now in Hebrew, they're both the same word. God says, kum, but it says, rise. And so you get to the beginning of verse 3, and it says, and Jonah, kum, he, he rose. And you're thinking, oh, good, he's going to get up, and he's going to do what the Lord said him. No, he rose. First part, he's obedient, but instead of going east, he heads west. Like 180 degrees. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Yahweh. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. You know, you look on a map, Nineveh, east, at least northeast. Tarshish, not sure exactly where it is, but one of the places they figure it was was on the southern coast of Spain. And what's written about it in Second Chronicles, 
kind of indicates it when it was an exotic place. Nineveh, east. Tarshish, west. Into pagan, the heart of pagan, hostile, brutal people, Nineveh, east. Or to a spa, you know, a resort off the southern coast of Spain. What sounds better to you? Tarshish, that's what he does. Gets up 180 degrees in the opposite direction, off to his destination, um, Wonderland. And in so doing so, he, it says, notice twice, it says, from, he, 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 he went away from the presence of the Lord. I can't think of a more sad and ironic thing in terms of a prophet of Yahweh running away from the presence of the Lord. In rejecting the Lord's word, he is rejecting and leaving behind God's presence. Twice it said, away from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord in Scripture and has been known by the experience of all who have been born again to be the single most wonderful thing in all of life, the presence of God. The presence of God was made known in Jerusalem. It was a place of revelation, a place of blessing, and he willingly and intentionally is booking it opposite direction. Away from the presence of the Lord. You'll notice, too, he also repeats another phrase, he went down. It says he went down to Joppa, and once he found the ship and paid for the ship, he went down into the ship, which is an awkward way of talking about boarding a ship, which has led a number of scholars to believe that this isn't merely physical and geographical language. This is also symbolic of what's happening to him spiritually. As he's rejecting the word of the Lord, which is hard, he is leaving the presence of God and his life is sliding downward into a spiritual direction of chaos, destruction, and death. That's where he's headed. Just from the first three verses, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the word of the Lord, down, down, down into the darkness of the sea. That's, that's where he's headed. So that's a little about the prophet, a little about his mission and his response. The rest of the story, unfortunately, I'm not telling you this morning. We'll get into it next week. But let me just pause here and say, to sum this up, listen, here's a prophet of God, the most unlikely of people, who's given a message of God that's hard. And instead of submitting and yielding to it, um, as both the, the pagans on the ship and the pagans in Nineveh later would, he rebels against it, and it takes him on a downward slide towards chaos, destruction, and death. Now let me offer two preliminary points of application to this, and these will be brief. And both of them, since the word of God and response to it are central here, I'm going to keep it centered on our response to the word of God. And it might seem, I, just, I implore you to listen to this next part. Though it may seem like theology 101, we live in a time and a culture and a society where we need to hear it again and again and again in terms of the centrality of responding and holding fast to the word of the Lord. One implication, and these are just a positive and kind of a flip side of the coin, negative. Surrender to God's word is key to the joy of his presence. You cannot separate the presence from the Lord from rejecting the word of the Lord. That's, that's clear in verses 1 through 3. 
leaves the word, rejects the word, he's rejecting the presence of God. The reverse is therefore true. That surrender, that is a yieldedness to God's word, is the key to enjoying his, his presence. Which means if you have people who are living lives intentionally contrary to God's revealed truth, both in the gospel and its moral implications... They're living opposite or contrary, and yet they're professing to experience some deep, meaningful joy of the presence of the Lord. Whatever's happening here isn't of the Spirit. Conformity or yieldedness to, to, to God's Word is a, is a requirement for the experience of the joy of God's presence. You can't separate those. If you're living an unholy life intentionally and actively and professing to somehow experience a wonderful joy of the Lord, it's not true. Jonah's a perfect example of that. Moreover, just to recognize how important our response to this is. As I said, we, we, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a dangerous time. I am genuinely fearful for my children and my children. In case you haven't noticed it or not, there is a massive division taking place in our country and abroad. A massive division between those who are being pressured and caving to the pressures of redefining and re-justifying what biblical truth says clearly, in addition to the fact that there have been thousands of years of interpretation that are consistent to change it. Meanwhile, while the pressure grows, others are saying, no, we've got to stick to this. This is, this, is, this is crucial, right? The word of the Lord created the universe. It created the church. It will bring the, everything back together. We can't, like, just, like, toss it off. And yet that's precisely what's happening, especially in the younger generations. And just the importance of every generation, every single generation of just... I don't care if every other voice speaks something different. This is the one truth I know to submit your life to. There's, there's no true joy of the Lord where there's not a yielded, humble surrender to his word. Even though we can't fully live up to his word, this side of, of heaven, this side of the new creation, this side of resurrection. Nevertheless, there still is a spiritual humility about, I know this is true. And by the Spirit of God and by the power of God and by the grace of God, I know he's going to form me into the image that this casts of me. It's also just in terms of, it's, it's astounding to me that one could be a prophet. I mean, that you could handle the word of God in a, in a way that no one else does and at the same time have such a, a boneheaded understanding of the Lord. That tells me that you could be a pastor like me and a deacon and elder Sunday school teacher and teach and teach and teach and never really have your heart fully get who God is. You can come time after time in this, in this room and we can study all we want, but it's, it, 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 he can be that close and still not get it. It's really easy for us not to truly get God's word or fully surrender ourselves to what it teaches. So that's, 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 that's one piece. Just recognize the importance of of never letting this go. The flip side of that, of course, I mean, if, if, if the greatest joy in life is the steadfast love of God's presence, then to let go of that means you head in the opposite direction. 
That is, rejection of God's word inevitably leads towards chaos, misery, and death. I bet if we shared right now, and I walked around with a microphone, we could list a number of people who used to either be here or maybe at a different church experience where you were, who you watched make intentional decisions contrary to the will of Christ and watch them begin a downward slide step by step, sometimes fast, other times just an incremental slow drifting away. And now those people who were once here are now living fragmented, chaotic, miserable lives. Jonah's descent into the darkness and into the belly of Sheol, to quote chapter 2, is a result of him leaving behind both the word and the presence of the Lord. And that's the truth every time. Every time we just decide, I'm, I'm, I'm not going that way, Lord. You just understand you are on the slope heading downward into kind of a spiritual tailspin where your life will end up in fragmented misery. So on the front side, that's a warning to us. The brothers and sisters, Parkway Community Church, and in terms of our children and their children's children, the word of God is paramount to our survival and to our health. But for those who might be here who are like, yeah, that was my path. Man, I've already made a complete mess of my life. We need to understand that our response to God's word and our surrendered, um, yielded obedience to him is always predicated on first causes, and that is um, that the Lord is the one who redeems. The Lord is the one who chases after, like he chases after Jonah. Um, that we yield ourselves to the word of God, trusting that he is good, trusting that he's forgiving, trusting that he is redeeming, trusting that he's unrelenting, trusting that he is a gracious and always willing to take us back kind of Lord. That's who he is. And I would be remiss if I didn't make one final contrast because it means the heart and soul of why we should submit our lives to God. When Jesus walked the earth, you know, he, he made mention of Jonah. In fact, he said, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the sign of the Son of Man was that he was going to be in the belly of the earth for three days. He saw a similarity between Jonah's going down into the pit and his own. And you think about that there's a similarity, but there's also a massive dissimilarity. Um, Jonah's an example of a prophet who got a really hard word from the Lord to go into the heart of enemy territory and speak. And what did he do? He chickened out. He cowered and he ran. And that negative contrast just to me amplifies and exalts the fact that there was another prophet, capital P prophet, whom, and I'm going to use my own imagination here, whom Yahweh said, listen, son, I have a word for you, and I have a mission for you. I want you to go down into the filth, into this dark and dirty and lost world. And you know what? It is, it is a, a beehive of hostility and jealousy and violence. And you're going to get there, and you are going to suffer, and you are going to be horribly, massively 
disfigured and murdered. And Jesus wasn't like Jonah. Jesus said, I'll do it. That's our prophet. Came into enemy territory. In the story, we're the Ninevites. We're the ones he came to. And uh, all to pay for the sins of the Ninevites and pay for the sin of those who are gathered here this morning at Parkway. So that we can yield ourselves to the Lord in trust. Because we could come to know someone who's loved us so much that when we can't compute everything that he's doing, we can trust that. Because some, a God who's willing to do that and a prophet who's willing to lay down his life for the sake of his people, I can trust that even if I can't compute him. I can't think of a better way to come to the table this morning. This is the, the bread and the cup. This is the body and the blood of Jesus celebrating the fact that our prophet came into enemy, enemy, enemy territory and he paid the price. And I just want to encourage you if, um, as you come, um, or maybe even before you come, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come. Songs will be played, and, and that's when we come and, and take it. Um, but just to, just to ask yourself this simple question, am I, am I like Jonah, resistant to God's word? It, you can be in church 30 years and, and harden yourself for the Lord. Or am I, is my heart soft? Am, am I hearing him afresh? Am I yearning, eager to hear him? And is my heart wanting to love him because he first loved us? Those are the things I, I ask you to just consider as, as we come. Let me pray and then um, come as you will. There's both gluten-free bread for those who have allergies and regular. Just ask for it at all three places. And there will be people in the corners if you'd like to be prayed for. And if I could ask those who are serving communion with me, come forward as I pray. Uh, let's commune with the Lord. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for um, your grace. We just ask in these moments as we live in a world that is... Um, both ambivalent and even rejecting of your holy word, we ask that you would um, forge within us a humble courage, um, uh, a sensitive boldness uh, with, with truth. Just, Lord, you examine hearts and minds just right now in this time we have. Um, bless us through the bread and the cup in Christ's name.